Welcome to Live, Leadership, Innovation, Ventures, and Entrepreneurship, a podcast that showcases the talents, skills, and abilities of UT faculty, staff, and students. I'm your host, Brandon Jones, Associate Director for Student Learning and Development in Housing and Dining, and we're excited to have you listening to us. Welcome, everybody, to the Leadership, Innovation, Ventures, and Entrepreneurship podcast, also known as LIVE. I'm your host, Brandon Jones, Associate Director for Student Learning and Development. And today we have a wonderful guest for you in the form of none other than Dr. Richard Reddick. Um, Doc, how are you doing this morning? Bro, I'm doing great, Dr. Jones. It's great to be here. I, I made it to live. I'm going to put that in my resume, man. It's, this, is, this, is, this is big, man. This is big for me, man. So I appreciate the opportunity to be here, man. Hey, thank you for agreeing to uh, meet with us this morning. So as the audience knows, this week while we're recording this episode is the celebration of First Gen Week. And you yourself happen to serve on the committee that's helping to serve and establish programming and initiatives for our students. And so when, we, when I knew we were doing this slate of recordings, I had to reach out to you. And so I'm yeah. really thankful that you're going to bless us today uh, with your presence. And so why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself, your title, the department you work in, and then we can dive into the work you're doing with our first gen students. Sure, Brandon. So first of all, today's Veterans Day. So I think a shout out to my dad and all the veterans out there. And, and that's part of my story because I'm an Air Force brat. So my dad served 26 years in the Air Force. Mm-hmm. We lived uh, overseas in England and Florida and born in Texas. I'm very proud of that. I was born in West Texas in the country. The other side of the state from you, man. But I was born out there and we moved to England right away. So I spent most of my time, my childhood, about 10 years living in the UK. And we moved to Austin in 1986. That was when uh, my dad was stationed at his final change of station, which is Bergstrom Air Force Base, which is now the airport. Mm-hmm. And so we came to Austin and I was just like, okay, this is, you know, I'm in Texas, you know, it's not, it's not raining anymore. Like it was in England all the time. Right. And so I went to, I graduated in 1990. I went to 12 different schools between kindergarten and graduation. And I went to four here in the city, graduated from Johnston high school in the East side of town, which is now called East side Memorial. So I, I had a, um, Fairly interesting experience because I went to some of the schools. So the Department of Defense Education Activity Schools mm-hmm. are some of the schools with the slightest gap between NAEP scores among Black, Latino, white students. The mm-hmm. achievement is very close. It's one of the most equitable school districts in the country. Obviously, it's not in the country. It's overseas. But so I come... I came from that experience to Austin, Texas. And as you know, Austin has this uh, reputation and actually in the data of inequity, right? There's mm-hmm. this amazing inequities educationally, socioeconomically, racially. And I had that experience. So it was very jarring. And so I think for me, all through high school, I was thinking about, well, how is it that people in the same city are having such different educational experiences? And that is no shade to my experiences. I had the most amazing teachers. Mm-hmm. I was taught by activists on the east side of Austin, which was an amazing experience. And long story short, I had an opportunity to come to UT in the fall of 1990. I came on a scholarship. And inequity became more of my conversation because I'm like, okay, I go to school in the barrio with black and brown kids all the time. Right. We're diverse. We have we have kids from West Austin there. So we have white kids, we have wealthy kids. But I'm in a place where I clearly am the numer- numerical minority. Mm-hmm. And furthermore, 
I'm experiencing all these things I read about, like in books about you know, microaggressions and being treated a certain way because you're a black male, mm-hmm. which I'd never really experienced before. So that was quite jarring. So that's just to say that my entire schooling experience really sort of oriented me to, to focus on issues of equity, especially in education spaces. So I came back, to, there's a long story between that, but I came back to UT in 2007 mm-hmm. as a faculty member in the College of Education. And where'd you go to graduate school? I went to Harvard Graduate School of Education okay. up in Cambridge, Massachusetts in the cold. It was crazy, man, because I'd never been, I'd only been to Boston one time before. I went there when I was on Wheel of Fortune as a UT student for college week. So check this out, y'all. Humble bragging here. He, just, he straight up was about to skip completely over Harvard in true Du Boisian form. He was about to straight skip Harvard over grad. the Harvard experience. Well, well, Du Bois is a Harvard grad, so not to go deeper. But so we went to Boston to film the college week uh, Wheel of Fortune uh, in 1993. Mm-hmm. And I, I knew that Harvard was somewhere near Boston. And I remember getting mm-hmm. to the cab and saying, hey, where's, where's Harvard? And the cabbie said, uh, that's in Cambridge. And I'm like, it's all the same to me. No, it's Boston. <laughs> I'm like, wait, so cool. So I've only been there one time. And so I basically went to Harvard sight unseen because wow. I didn't know anything. And I said to myself, I'm gonna get the view book. And this is before we had internet websites. Mm-hmm. So the view book came and I said, yeah. the view book has black people in it or brown people in it. I'm gonna check it out. I'm gonna apply. Cause right. you know, it's like, it's Harvard. It sounds so highfalutin and in truth i was teaching in houston at the time in hisd mm-hmm. and i was on a committee with a woman named valencia i can't remember valencia's last name but uh she was just like bad she just like had her stuff together and she was at harvard superintendency program so i'm like well you know if that's what happens at harvard first of all i'm not ready for that and second of all i'd like to be ready for that one day and yeah. she said you should apply don't even no, no don't even think like that you should you should apply wow and so i I opened the book and I saw two black faces. I saw Roland Hentz, director of admissions at Harvard. And then I saw uh, Charles Willie, uh, sociologist and Charles William Elliott, professor of education. I'm like, mm-hmm. I see two brothers. I'm on my way. There you go. Uh, applied, got in the, in the U-Haul. We drove up there and lived in a square box <laughs> in yeah. Harvard Square. Uh, and I met Dr. Willie the first day of my graduate school career. And he and I have been tight ever since. We're both uh, we're both Texans. I did not know this. He's from Oak Cliff. Okay. Um, you know, Morehouse grad, both alphas. He, he, uh, he, he just is just this transcendent figure in history, but the coolest dude you'd ever meet in your life. Mm-hmm. And so warm and, and welcoming. And so he just turned 92. So shout out to Dr. Willie. Uh, but um, he really set my career in motion. I ended up taking half of my coursework with him in grad school as a master's student. Mm-hmm. Stayed in touch over the years. He came to Austin one time, bro, and he uh, called my parents. Wow. And my parents called me and said, uh, "Your professor called us. <laughs> like, what's <laughs> up with that? Like, oh. weren't you in school last year? Like, why is he calling us now? Like, they were actually kind of worried. I'm like, right. it's cool. He's supposed to say, you know, say hi to y'all and hang out. And so, um, you know, I ended up going back to grad school for my doctorate, and I worked closely with him. Uh, we wrote two books, no, three books together. Uh, wow. Um, and Dr. Willie's just, uh, I, I, he's a mensch. He's just an amazing uh, person, a generous person. And the funny story is when I came back to UT in 2007, I had to deal with, everything was done very late. Dissertation was turned in at the last possible date, started the job in August. Uh, first son, Carl, was born in October. It was a crazy year. I get a call like in November and they're saying, hey, Rich, how's it going in Austin? I'm like, it's going great. They're like, well, look, um, we have some good news for you. You've been uh, named as a class marshal. Uh, for Harvard. Um, I'm like, that's great, but I live in Texas. So, you know, (laughs) 
and I, and I was like, well, I want to go to graduation. I want to go to commencement. So right. I, they said, okay, well, you need to come back up and you need to buy the regalia, blah, blah, blah. So I'm like, this is cool. Uh, but now we have a small child and we got to plan a trip, all of us to, to, to Boston and mm-hmm. my folks and everybody like that. Because I told them this is my last graduation, you yeah. know. So this ain't gonna be any other chances to do this. So we went up there and we stayed with Dr. Willie. It was so great. Uh, he, he, he and his wife, Mary Sue, put us up in the house with our, oh God, Carl was like eight, seven, eight months old, nine months wow, old. Wow, wow. He acted a straight fool. He, of I mean, course. He, That's what they he acted out. He acted out um, the day of getting there. And I was trying to get to, uh, they live in Concord, which is outside of Cambridge. And mm-hmm. anywhere in New England, they call it New England because it's like England. And anywhere in that space is not, you know, a five mile distance will take you 30 minutes to drive. So literally, I remember driving out, leaving the family behind, putting my robes on and jumping out the car, doing a barrel roll, getting in front. Uh, <laughs> and they all showed up. But we have pictures and it looks like it was a great day. And, you know, Carl was well behaved. Man, he, he straight clowned and cried and had fits. And of course, he's always flexing like oh yeah i was up there at graduation i'm like yeah man you were not cool yeah. <laughs> but it was a great experience man so thank you for sharing that talk to us a little bit about um you know w- this week not only is today veterans day so shout out to veteran to all the veterans yeah. listening but also with this week is the time we set aside in higher education to uh honor and celebrate the accomplishments of our first generation college students can you talk to the audience about why that's important and why we should continue doing this, not just this particular week, but all year long. Absolutely, brother. I mean, I mean, one of the things I think about is my own personal experience. I had a very rich uh, cultural educational experience. Uh, my parents didn't go to college, though. Mm-hmm. So in my household, it was always like, hey, you know, just keep grinding, keep grinding, you know, keep getting those A's and those high B's. But better A's, get the A's if you can. Um, and by the time I got to the close to the end, they were like, well, you should go to college, whatever that is, you know, <laughs> however that works, you should do it. Right. And, and for me, a lot of things fell into place, largely because I went to a school that was fairly integrated and I had classmates whose parents went to college. So I got a lot of college advising from peers, not mm-hmm. from the counseling staff, but from mm-hmm. those folks. You know, I get to UT, I'm in an honors program, again, because my AP English teacher, her son was in, in the Plan 2 Honors Program, and she said, you should apply to this program. I said, I don't think so. I'm going to school to get C's so I can just get through because that's it, right? After college, you're done, right? So there's no point in trying to get A's in college. That was the mindset. Right. And she was like, well, you know, if you don't take uh, apply for this program, you won't pass AP English. You have an independent study assignment to do. And I'm like, man, that's so ill. But <laughs> it changed my life. Of course, I'm the associate, I'm assistant director of Plan Two Honors now, and that's you know that's how it started because my AP English teacher forced me to apply to this program, which I had no idea what it was. So you're so, over, you oversee the program you came through, yeah. That ultimately, didn't want to even participate in at one right, time. right. I was like, Plan Two, what you know? Um, but anyway, <laughs> the point is like all the things I'm talking to you about are so circumstantial and just by fate. Mm-hmm. And we realize that's not the way we want it to be. We, we don't want people stacking privilege and we don't want people to be outside of the hidden curriculum. We want people to understand that, first of all, you know, I look at Terry Yosa's work about community cultural wealth. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of deficit thinking about first-generation college students. Like, oh, well, they don't have this. They, they lack this. They lack that. And Terry Yosa really talks about the fact that because of you getting to this point, uh, whether it's your navigational capital, familial capital, uh, aspirational capital, all these different forms of, of, of strengths you have, mm-hmm. 
So every time I talk to students who are first gen, I tell them that. I said, you know, you got here despite every imaginable impediment. Mm -hmm. So you, there's no way this place can stop you. There's nothing you can't do. You need to be reminded sometimes that you have these things because sometimes you forget and sometimes it is isolating. And sometimes the jargon, um, Tony Jack is a good friend of mine who's at Harvard, wrote a book called The Privileged Poor. He talks about this issue uh, of, of first-generation college students who are low-income and of color. And the jargon at universities, bro, you and I know this, right? I mean, there are so many words we can drop in a conversation, the bursar, the registrar, you know, semester credit hours. And people are like, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. You know? Q drop. What is that? You know, so a lot of it's just breaking down the vocabulary. And uh, one of the great things I like about First Gen Week is that we get to focus on those things. Mm -hmm. And because we're both higher ed people, we're probably the most jargony people who ever live. My dad's in the military, mm -hmm. and that's a pretty jargon laden place. Right. I think we have more jargon in in higher ed. You know, our abbreviations, our acronyms we use. So just making it clear what those things are. And then secondly, uh, ensuring that uh, both our faculty, staff, students, administrators, uh, and families understand that they really bring um, a dimension of the experience that we do not have access to, and they're vitally important. Um, so I get very hyped for uh, First Gen Week. In fact, on Thursday, um, I'm opening my class, my graduate class, uh, to some First Gen students to come visit, just to check out grad school. Because I, I know every day post graduation from high school was an adventure for me because literally I was uncharted territory and my family was always supportive, man, always, but not necessarily knowing how to support. They were like, well, you know, you're smart. You'll figure it out. And I'm like, well, how do I figure it out? <laughs> you know, where do I go? And so for me, uh, being part of a number of success programs, like the welcome program, which we had back in the nineties at UT with Mrs. Brenda Burt. I mean, that really mm -hmm. shaped my experience at UT. I mean, just working with, uh, many, many first-gen, not all first-gen, but many first-gen, uh, low-income, uh, African-American, Latino students coming to UT uh, was just transformative, right? I, I, you know, you, you realize you know a little bit and what little bit you know, you can pass on to somebody else. Mm -hmm. And that gives you confidence because you're like, I know something, you know? Um, I became an orientation advisor at the end of my first year. And orientation is where I really found my space. I did orientation for my gosh, four years. Love uh, I'd even maxed out. Apparently, like last year, I was orientation special assistant because I'd been doing orientation for like three years straight. Like, we got to find a new category for you. <laughs> um, and, and just working with our incoming students because, again, it's powerful when they see you as a first-gen, uh, low-income student of color leading these organizational mm -hmm. things. And then secondly, it's also a message to folks who are not first-gen that we are not deficient. Like, yo, this guy's running orientation. Like, it's not like, you know, and he knew nothing about college three years ago. Mm -hmm. But he can give you the best campus tour. He can give you all the down, you know, all the information about registering for classes, mm -hmm. where to live, all that stuff like that. So it, 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 it's, it's such an exciting time to really um, remind our first-gen students that you're valued. Uh, we're excited to have you here. It's an honor to have you um, in the University of Texas. And how many of us have that same experience? Like, you know, administrators, faculty members, staff members, uh, students. Uh, we don't walk around really with first-gen badges, but this week we do. Yes. People know, like, you know, you might think, you know, fancy resume, fancy graduate school, whatever, mm -hmm. fancy title. But I am like you. I came to the university with no idea what I was going to do. No idea I'd be coming back several times, you know, for degrees. <laughs> um, 
and that's really part of what this is about is it's giving people the vision. So one of the things that Terry Yoso talks about is aspirational capital, you know, Ghana's dreams, you know, and I think the first time I heard people talking about, well, you can do all this stuff. I'm like, I can. Wow. That's hype. I, I hadn't even thought about those things. I was like, get the degree, become employed, you know, and, and life, you know, I never thought, well, what if you do that for a while? go back to school, get a degree, live in California, live in Georgia, you know, live back in uh, Massachusetts, get another degree, and then become a professor. That was not part of the plan. Uh, but thankfully, I had people around me who were always saying, you know, they could see it's a little bit further than I could see. They're just like, yeah, you should try for this. You should go for this. Mrs. Burt was that person for me. You know, why don't you try, you know, why don't we put you in this situation? Why don't we give you this opportunity? And, um, Every single time, you know, it, it worked out. And I was just like, I got confidence. So the imposter syndrome for me, I mean, it's always there, but it definitely became like, well, yeah, I'm nervous. I, I don't know if I can do this or not, but I've done things like this before. Right. So, you know, why not? Let's give it a shot. And, and I think this environment, uh, the people I was surrounded by really uh, had that encouragement for me. And so if we can pay that forward for our first gen students and just say, just listen to people like Dr. Jones and Dr. Reddick, who've been around a little bit saying, you know, this thing that's out there, you should really think about doing that thing and don't blow it off and don't say, oh, well, y'all just be nice to me. No, right. <laughs> we're serious. We're like, go for this thing because you could do it. Right. And I appreciate you sharing that. One thing I want to go back to that you had said was going, talking about this deficit thinking. And when Kay, Kaylee uh, Danfuss and I were recording the episode the other day, uh, we focused on that. And, and I mentioned that, you know, in my dissertation, that's one of the things that I focused on because I was talking about black male athletes and mm -hmm. how I, I've stopped subscribing to deficit achievement frameworks. And, I've, and like Sean Harper and others kind of started taking on this anti-deficit achievement mindset especially when it came to black and brown students on college campuses can we can we talk about how we can help not just faculty but also staff adopt that mindset and that language when we're referring to and talking about um our first gen students because a lot of the times that shows up in how we advise it shows up in the programs that we put out there and then ultimately it shows up in how we treat these students when they're in our classrooms or in our offices so can you talk a little bit about that oh absolutely shout out to the the homie uh kaylee and harp over at usc you know yes, sir. ogs you know out there you're exactly right i mean you know if you know anything about um some of the work that uh claude Steele's done on stereotype threat mm -hmm. right when you implant expectations on people people live up or live down to them right so the whole issue of stereotype threat is when you are uh provoked to think about how deficient or how poorly people in your category perform you tend to do less well in those environments, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, when you understand that, if you think, oh, the student's a first-generation college student, they're low income, oh, they probably haven't had, like I just described to you, I grew up, you know, going to school uh, next to castles and mm -hmm. I had this great cultural experience, but still low-income student, right? So those things can exist. Like the assumption that you, because you're low income or you're first generation, that you've had a culturally vacant experience is problematic, right? Mm -hmm. now. It's not to say that maybe you didn't get a chance to go to France every summer, but you can read, you know, you can be exposed to great things. You can have family members who give you that kind of access to those kinds of things. And the second thing is acting as if the college experience is somehow um, 
complete or somehow perfect. Mm -hmm. When in fact, the systems we have in place, and I teach history of higher education, you know this, you know, um, have not changed radically from 1636, right? Mm -hmm. uh, residential colleges um, oriented towards the wealthy, uh, the white, the male, the privileged, you know, that's still the paradigm that we use primarily in higher education at four-year institutions that are considered, you know, competitive, right? Mm -hmm. Open access to universities, community colleges, you know, they have oriented themselves more towards the modern college students. But a lot of times we're just kind of patch stuff from way back when and never thought about reimagining or reconstructing the educational experience. And we're trying to do that. But institutions like higher education move slowly, right? It's hard. Mm -hmm. So even when people frame, well, this child, this student is struggling. Reality is the institution is struggling mm -hmm. because the institution has not met the needs of the students that we are admitting. And that's often because it's a shared responsibility. It's too often we say, well, the student didn't do X, Y, and Z. And the good example of this is when I was on SCOPRO. And yes, I was on SCOPRO. And I felt terribly ashamed. Uh, I didn't, I kind of hit out for like the first couple of weeks of the next semester because I thought everybody knew I was on SCOPRO. I went Tell people what that is. Scholastic probation. That's mm -hmm. when your grades dip mm -hmm. and you like, wow, you know, you don't get them back up. No scholarship, no program, you know, hit the bricks. And so that was kind of jarring to me because, you know, look now, Today, we have warning signs. We have ways through Canvas and our LMSs to track these things. Like, we can tell when a student's not coming to class and say, hey, you know, what's going on? But we didn't have that back in those days. Um, if you had a professor who was concerned, I'll tell you what happened to me. Mm -hmm. I was in a large lecture classroom, and um, I was in a class that I was probably inappropriately advised to take. Uh, it was a physics class. And I didn't take physics in high school. So why am I taking an honors physics class in college, right? There, there's some scaffolding there that got missed. And people are like, oh, you're smart. You're figured it out. Um, I'm also a first-year student, so I'm not the most responsible, you know, study-focused person there. I'm trying to have a freshman year, and I'm not studying. I'm not going to extra office hours. I'm not doing those things. And um, I finally got desperate when I got my last couple of grades. It was like, this is looking bad. And I went to the TA to beg, basically. And he said, well, you know, if you came to class more frequently, I think you would blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, that's some shade. But <laughs> I'm a black male student in a lecture class where there are two black males mm -hmm. and three black women. Mm -hmm. So he knows when I'm not in class. Yep. You know, so and then secondly, um, so a lot of it's my responsibility. But the other part of it is like nobody really reached out and said, wait a minute. Um, what is, what's going on with you? You know, why are you avoiding the class? Is it class content too difficult? Do you need scaffolding and support? And when you're in an honors program, a lot of times you feel like there's no way you should ask for help because you're an honors student. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't be asking for help. Mm -hmm. So uh, for me, I mean, it was all of those psychological issues and then realizing, yes, I had a large responsibility in, the, in, the, in this uh, lack of success. But also institutionally, there were some failures that we just didn't attend to. And so now, you know, I remember reading in graduate school um, two books, uh, Losing the Race by John McWhorter. Mm -hmm. uh, John McWhorter is a brilliant linguist, but he has very problematic framings mm -hmm. <laughs> of black students. My chair would and, not let me cite him in my dissertation. <laughs> well, here's the great thing about that, though. Sometimes reading Pedro Nogueira was my professor. He's Pedro was at uh, out to Dr. Nogueira, man. Yeah. I Pedro's at Pedro. Berkeley. Is he yeah, at Berkeley? No, he's at, he's at USC now. USC, that's right. That's yep. right. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Uh, Dean um, yes. uh, Nagara. So, 
So when I had him for a class, we had to read, you know, Charles Murray's The Bell Curve. We had to read Losing the Race. And we just get heated and angry. He was like, you need to understand what people are saying about our students. Mm. You need to understand that. Like, that's good. And I was like, that's deep. And, and reading uh, McWhorter sort of complaining about his students. Mm-hmm. You know, my students didn't do X, Y, and Z. I'm like, well, what did you do? Did you do anything to reach out to these students to maybe understand they were feeling imposter syndrome and they felt embarrassed and ashamed to come to you and say, I don't know what's going on. You could reach out. You reach out and they don't reach back. Okay. But you could have done those things. Mm-hmm. And that's when it kind of triggered me to say, I got to do something different than this. And so I had a chance to talk to John McWhorter. Um, wow. He came to Harvard to give a talk. And I just said, okay, on page 76, uh, losing the race, you described a situation when you were, you know, dealing with a student. I'm just wondering if you ever thought about uh, engaging with the students and finding out what was happening with them, you know, mm-hmm. interpersonally, not just they were coming to class and they didn't care, but you made an assumption about that. And he was just like, well, I, you know, I, I did. he didn't answer the question basically. <laughs> so, so I said, let me never be that kind of professor. Mm. And I'm, I'm sure, listen, uh, John McWhorter, I've grown to respect his work over time in yeah. linguistics. So I'm sure he's great in so many ways, but I said, let me never be a, a callous sort of uh, thinker. And of course we can talk about students having responsibility, mm-hmm. but let me always be humble about how my students are experiencing the experience. I don't know what they're going through. I don't know what they're experiencing at home. I don't know what they're experiencing financially. So let me always think about that first and foremost and make sure they're okay. And then if you're okay, I'm gonna light into you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now we establish that you're okay and you're eating and you have a place to live and you have the money you need to have. Why don't you come to class? Mm-hmm. That's how I start, you know, not with this idea, well, you really should step up to the game. I mean, that's, that's all well and good, but we need to really think about this from a systems perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, what is a system doing to support you? What's the system doing to either uh, subvert your progress or is negligent in some ways? So we are institutions of higher education we are constantly learning, or we should be constantly learning how to better serve our students. It's not a one-way street. And I love what you were saying there about thinking about it from a systems perspective, because it, you know, in research and athletes, there's all this research out there. Uh, Kirsten Benson being one of my favorites when I, I got to meet her when I was at Tennessee. And she talked about how the institution at times lets the players down. As a matter of fact, a lot of the time, because you know, if, if, if I come in wanting to do a major and you're, you're creating all these barriers for me as an athlete to do these majors, Ultimately, if I don't go pro or if I don't, don't you bear some responsibility in there for not helping me? And that's why I like some institutions like Clemson uh, have programs where players can come back and finish the degree if they if they've met a certain number of requirements. And so I've appreciated seeing more doors opening there. But uh, I, I did appreciate the fact that you were pointing out that sometimes as an institution, we bear some responsibility and we often don't say that, especially when we're talking about our first gen students. I appreciated you putting that out there. I want to shift gears real quick uh, because there's there's an experience that I want you to to talk more about with our audience. And that's the trips that you take students to to Cambridge. Yeah. Talk about the importance of that. First of all, tell us why you do that, but also share the importance of, especially when you get some of those first gen students experiencing international life and other systems and other areas of the world for the very first time. Oh, man, you got my favorite topic now. Okay, this is going to be great. Oh, yeah, I knew you were going to love it. (laughs) Yeah, so, um, you know, 
as a first gen low income student, I never troubled study abroad. It just looked, I saw the sticker price. I'm like, what? Mm-mm, I got to work. Like, how do you, how do you go abroad when you have a job and you have, you know, rent to pay? How do you do that? So I just never really gave it much attention. And so I went to undergrad and I always graduate. My wife went to Normandy as a Normandy scholar at UT uh, before when I was, I think I graduated by that time and she had already gone to Normandy and had this amazing experience. And I kind of felt like, man, I missed out. So I always had this regret. I mean, my UT experience was pretty full. I, I pretty much did everything I wanted to do. But the one thing I wish I had done is study abroad. Yeah. And um, a, a few years ago, when I was directing the master's program in higher ed, um, two of my students said, we're interested in studying abroad. I'm like, you're grad students. I don't think you can do that. They're like, well, we found one we could go to, and we're going to go to this place in London. We're going to go to London over the summer and hang out. So they went, and I had two other students who that year went. One went to Finland. One went to uh, South America and, and I had two students in London. So I'm like, I got like four of my students who are studying abroad as graduate students. Yeah. Okay, this is new to me. They came back and of course, uh, at least two of them were already ver- very well seasoned in studying abroad. They'd done it before in undergrad. They were addicted to it. It was like the thing they did. Um, and the other two came back and said, Dr. Reddick, you know, it was Sonny and, and, and Donna. And they said, look, we went to this went to Oxford for a day, met this professor there, Peter Klaus. He's amazing. He's doing all this stuff for mm-hmm. access. So I talked to got a lie. I said, Dr. Klaus, nice to meet you. I'm in UT Austin. And he was, hey, Rich, it's great to meet you. You know, sometime we should get together and talk about, because, you know, you're working on access issues. So mm-hmm. am I. Um, and the reality is in the UK, um, social inequities are similar but different. Mm-hmm. So there is racialized uh, oppression, of course. Uh, there is racial gaps, but there's also socioeconomic and class gaps in a way that we're not used to understanding, right? Um, I was listening to Radio 4, which is like their NPR, and they mm-hmm. had this discussion one day about people's experiences with their accents. And most Americans think there's one accent, the Hugh Grant accent, right? But there's so many regional accents across the UK. You can tell people are from based on their accents. And of course, most Americans can't decipher what people are saying from these regional areas. It's kind of like an East Texas accent, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, like mine. So, <laughs> and people were saying at the age of 12, I was told if I want to be successful in life, I would have to drop my Mancunian accent or my Liverpool accent. Hmm. And you're just like, what? And, but you're a, white, you're a white male. Why is this a problem? And it was painful. They were saying these experiences like, you know, I've actually lost contact with friends for my youth because they think I'm stuck up because I don't speak that way anymore. Hmm. So I was like, wow, I'd really like to look at that issue of inequity and, and you know, racialized inequity, social inequity, and in the UK educational context, and then compare it to the American context which my students understand and know. And so we started this in 2019. We went over there, Cantab 19, shout out to my uh, homies, 17 of them. Uh, and again, I met these students three or four times. I was still learning names on the plane ride over to England. Like, oh my gosh, I don't know who this person is. And um, bruh, in a month, I am shocked about how close we became as a group because we were navigating so many different things. So we were studying an academic concept. Mm-hmm. On the trip, we had seven black women, right? We had first-gen students. We had Latino students. We had white students. We had students who came from privilege. Mm-hmm. We had this amazing mix of folks, different majors. And we were all navigating and negotiating our own identity and trying to figure out, well, your experience has been like this. And people got to talk explicitly about that. I went to some of the best schools in Texas, went to private school. So I didn't even know these. Th- I know these things existed in the abstract, but you're my peer at UT 
and you went to a school had none of the things I had. Mm-hmm. How did you get here? That's amazing, right? Just the respect and honor that people had, that people had experiences. And secondly, for the folks who went from the experience that, that were very privileged, the humility they brought to it. So the folks who had the public school experiences like I did were like, yo, I, I thought everybody in your experience was stuck up and snobby. And I'm realizing that you're really a deep thinker. And so, brother, I mean, the final papers I had for my students, man, they still made me choked up, man, because they were so reflective mm-hmm. about, and we talked about intersectional differences too. So, you know, race and class being a, pr- a primary one, but my students were concerned about mental health. They were concerned about LBGTQ ex- experiences, right? They were making comparisons constantly. And we were in, you know, community college, which is like a, basically a comprehensive middle to high school, mm-hmm. talking to students, talking to staff there. We went to a sixth form college. Sixth form college is like a prep school for university. Uh, probably the best story about that, there was, we, we, we came there that day. And literally I said to the administrators, I said, look, we're interested in racial equity issues. Do you have students or staff we can talk to about that? And they called a young woman out of class and it was Femi. Mm-hmm. Femi got called out of class and said, there's a bunch of Americans who want to talk to you. Femi is a black woman. She comes to the space. She's 17 years old. She is running the school's equity systems. Wow. She's having panels. She's having people talk about the N-word. She's doing all sorts of 17-year-old. Wow. And uh, we brought her to the space and she came in and she's like, wait a minute. <laughs> like there's a whole lot of y'all in here. Right. And just the connection between this 17 year old black woman and these college aged and my wife and my daughter, uh, black women just vibing, you know, just like, I feel you. I feel you got home, got this crazy long email from Femi just saying, Dr. Reddick, you don't understand how much this meant to me. It was just amazing to hear you all talk to me. And she says, and furthermore, you know, my mom. And I'm like, how's that? She says, my right. mom runs the African food, you know, the Nigerian place you go to. She, she, when I said this professor from, from Texas who's American, she's like, oh, I know who he is. So we end up going to her restaurant and just kicking it, you know. Yeah. We have a cipher. We, we basically, I go there, students come through, the Nigerian folks come through. We just have a conversation about man. blackness. Yes. Mind-blowing, man. And it's like, you don't plan for those things. That's not part of the agenda. It's like, no. that's what happens. So the last day, brother, we go back, man, just to tears, man. It was just like, man, we were just like, to this day, I got to group me with my, with my, my can't have 19 people. Mm-hmm. We talk constantly, you know, when something happened in the UK, we talk about it. So, and, and of course, can't have 20, shout out to y'all. A lot of y'all going to come with me on 21 because we're going to make this happen this year. Praying's going to happen this year. But man, I mean, what it does for you as far as, like I said, it's a leveling, right? Because Everybody is a foreigner or new to this game, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't care how privileged you are. There's something that's experience that's new to you. The other thing, of course, is that there's not a language barrier per se. There is, but not in the traditional sense, right? Mm-hmm. So you do find some access points. And what's even more amazing, my students often would drop down to London. London's 60 miles from Cambridge. Mm-hmm. Go to Brixton. Brixton is blackity black, black, black. Yeah. Yeah. You think the diaspora is amazing. Go to go to Brixton and see UK black, West Indian blacks, you know, blacks from Africa, just having a vibe. I mean, it is so empowering, man. But Brixton and, is not just Idris Elba's character in Hobbs and Shaw. <laughs> exactly. For a lot of us, that's that's Brixton. That's all right. we know. <laughs> and, and people are like, like, oh my God, these British people sound funny. These black British people. And, you know, mm-hmm. just like we consider ourselves 100% American, they are 100% British, right? right? And that's their legacy. Like my grandfather, I'm half Jamaican. My grandfather, you know, was in the RAF in the Second World War. So all these things are part 
of the diaspora. And so when we think about trying to understand the diaspora, we often have a U.S. centric perspective. Mm. We don't think about Afro-Brazilians with the largest number of Africans in the new world are in Brazil, not the United States, mm. right? The West Indies, Central America, all different places where blackness exists. Right. So for my students, we're like, yo, I met some German black people. And it was just like off the chain. Like I didn't understand, like we had some common things and some things I'm like, what is that? You know? So just that experience was amazing for all of us, for the black students in particular, but for all the students, they were just like, there's such a rich cultural experience, even in a place that apparently, and Cambridge is very white. It's about 90% white. So mm -hmm. you might argue that, well, it's not very diverse, but what you get to learn is like, what is it like to live in the diaspora in other places? What are the common experiences we have? The day I left, Stormzy, who was a very uh, popular UK rapper, mm -hmm. his style called Grind. And this brother is just like amazing because he's taken his wealth from, from music mm -hmm. and decided to go all in education. He asked the question, why is Cambridge University only admitted, you know, 12 black students in their entire undergraduate body class and created scholarships wow. for these students? So wow. there were three black women who went to Cambridge on a Stormsea scholarship, writing a book about their experiences. So things like that were just like part of the experience. That I was just like, this is so dope. We had these guest speakers coming in, telling us about their experiences, what they knew. And sometimes they were just like, I, I don't know. I, I haven't thought about those issues. My students were like, well, you probably should. You know, mm -hmm. racial issues. And of course, as Americans, well, Americans, you think about race all the time. I'm like, well, what we probably have is, is a, a consciousness and awareness mm -hmm. of these issues. In the UK, I think they tend to subvert those issues. They tend to talk about things like class, which is easier to talk about, but less about race. Mm -hmm. And we had some very vivid experiences about that interpersonally with folks we traveled with where they just didn't, they've, it's not about race. It is about race, right. <laughs> very much so. So yeah, it, it was an amazing experience, brother. And, and I can't wait. If you're interested, it's called Exploring UK Education. Uh, I'm going this summer. Uh, deadline is the 15th. So you better hurry up if you're trying to go this summer. But I'm also going next summer as well. So I'm doing with D Dr. Terrence Green, my homie over in ELP. Two black men leading a study abroad uh, experience in the UK, which is going to be dope. So I just cannot wait, brother. Well, I appreciate that. Well, Dr. Reddick, we're definitely going to have to have you back because we got to expand upon that <laughs> blackness conversation because yes. I, I know that that's something that... Um, Cause I got to get Eric Tang in here too, to talk mm. about what is Asian too. Cause so, yep. I, so we, so we, we're going to, we're going to be, we're going to be breaking bread and having this conversation again sometime soon. So everybody be on the lookout for the return of Dr. Reddick. Uh, doc, you got any final words for the folks? No, shout out to Dr. Tang. That's, that's my home right there too. Oh, yeah. But uh, yeah, I think, I just think this experience we have, the opportunity we have at the University of Texas to, to engage with people like you, Dr. Jones and Brother Malik and, and MEC and, and Brandy and all the people, Holly, all the people we know on campus who are doing this work. It's so exciting. So my advice and my suggestion to everybody is to make sure you make those connections, right? That's the one thing we cannot, we can't improve on that. You have to be able to step out and say, Dr. Jones, I need to talk to you. Or, you know, Krista, I need to talk to you. You know, I need, I need to, Betty Jean, I need to have a, a, a shout out with you. The people I'm talking about naming are so open and welcome and committed to student success. Mm -hmm. They'll take the time to do it. And it might take, a, you know, a minute to get on their calendars. Everybody's busy. Uh, it's more challenging in a pandemic, clearly. Mm -hmm. But those are the things that you need to make. I, I always say to my students, every semester, you need to 
plan to make a new BFF on the faculty and staff, right? Yes, sir. Recommendation letters, letters for scholarships, you know, hookups. Make at least one or two people a semester. So when you walk out of this place, there's eight people at least, if not more, that can say, yo, I got this. This, this person is amazing. They've done incredible things. That's part of the experience. And you don't necessarily know that sometimes coming, you think it's just about getting grades. That's important. But the networking part's even more important. Dr. Reddick, thank you so much for being with us today. Looking forward to our next conversation. Absolutely, Brother Jones. Uh, stay black, uh, stay lifted. Uh, I cannot wait to talk again. And everybody have a great first gen college week. Yes, sir. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. To catch the next installment, be sure to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. This podcast was recorded and edited in collaboration with the LAITS Development Studios Audio Department. More information can be found at liberalarts.utexas.edu slash LAITS. The intro song was composed by Ian Herrera, and you can find his work at ianherrera.com. The outro song was composed by Noah Keller, and you can find more of his work at noahdkeller.com. We'll see you next time.